invite you to turn with me this morning to the book of Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15, we, um, we appreciate the songs, that, uh, hymns that have been called. Appreciate the thoughts that were presented in those hymns. If you caught a theme this morning in the calling of the hymns, most of them had to do the cross of Christ, shed blood. Did y'all catch that? Funny how the Lord works. The Lord works in mysterious ways, right? In Exodus 15, um, the first 21 verses of this chapter, uh, Israel is praising God exceedingly for his great deliverance uh, at the Red Sea. They should be praising him not only for that, but for his great deliverance in the land of Egypt that they just left. They should be praising him for delivering them from all ten plagues. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, a couple of times in there when the Lord promises that there's going to be a plague on Egypt in a certain land. He says, but my people shall be delivered. I'm going to put a difference between Israel and the Egyptians so that people will know that I have respect unto my people. As a matter of fact, there was you know, three days of darkness in the land. There was light in the land of Goshen. Uh, the animals died when the murrain or the hell came, but not in the land of uh, Israel or not in the, the uh, land of Goshen where Israel dwelt. Most importantly, the very last plague, the tenth plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn. Uh, when the death angel passed through Egypt, he passed over the houses of Israel, wherein the father had slain a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. I mean, do you catch that? The father slew a lamb and put the blood on the doorpost. And when the death angel saw the blood from the lamb that the father had slain, he passed over the houses of Israel. Can you see Christ in that? If you can't see Christ in that, you ain't read the Bible yet. I mean, that is just so plain. Israel was completely delivered. Not a single death of their family occurred. And they're brought to the Red Sea. A little bit of murmuring, a little bit of complaining. God still delivered. And then you find yourselves in the first 21 verses of, of Exodus 15, praising God and they're extolling Him for His great deliverance. Uh, but then beginning in verse 22, Israel leaves off praising, and they go to murmuring, and they go to complaining. It's really easy to see, let's see, let me say this. We have no problem pointing out the problem. We have no problem in our life pointing out problems. We have a problem in our life pointing out solutions. Uh, people can stand here and fill this pulpit and talk about what's wrong with the church. And I've done that. You've heard that. But, you know, there comes a point where uh, we all know the problems in the church. We're, we're ready to listen to somebody who's got some solutions, right? But in our negative, Nancy nature, it's real easy to point out problems. It's a whole lot harder to point out solutions. And that's what Israel does. And Israel's history 
is like that. Israel's history uh, is basically pointing out problems everywhere that they are. They have a hard time recognizing solutions. Israel will be brought uh, at this point to a place of no water. They'll be brought to a point of bitter water. But in the end of this chapter, they're brought, they're brought to a point of well water, uh, a land that is well watered. And they went from no water to bitter water to well water. Now, I think there's a bit of a pun that's put in that, that they are in a well watered land. Twelve wells of water water this land. So physically, it is well watered. Abundantly, it is well watered. Get, get, you get it? Twelve wells of water for the twelve tribes of Israel. See, the man that wrote this book ain't got nothing to learn. The God that inspired this book ain't got nothing to learn. And he didn't do things on accident. He didn't lead Israel to certain places on accident. Everything he did had a purpose. Everything he did had a divine design. Everything he does now has a divine design. And in this, in this passage of Scripture, you're going to find out that as Israel uh, journeys through the wilderness and they come to this bitter place, a lot of times in life you're going to find you yourself Journey in life to bitter places. Been to a bitter place lately? That's, there's some hidden things to that. But we've all been to bitter places. And we've all been to bitter places that we don't ever want to go back to. So let's, uh, let's begin looking uh, at this passage because God provides an answer. God provides an answer in this passage uh, he provides a solution to Israel's problem. He provides an answer to Moses' questioning. In this passage, God will deliver. You might well just make that statement. God will deliver, period. God will deliver Israel. But He will not deliver Israel because they are so good. As a matter of fact, very seldom did He deliver Israel because they were so good. As a matter of fact, Psalms 106 tells us that time after time after time, Israel tempted God. Israel forgot God's good, forgot God's goodness. Israel forgot God's goodness. Israel tested, tempted, tried God in the wilderness. And yet, Psalm 106 says, He saved them for His name's sake. That His mighty power might be known. Psalm 106. I mean, if we, if the church could just understand that one principle right there. That the deliverance that comes from God ultimately and eternally comes not because of your good works, but because of His power and His glory and His might that He might make His name to be seen as great. And God will do that here. He will deliver Israel, not because of God, not because of Israel's goodness. He will deliver Israel in spite of Israel's murmuring and complaining. He will deliver Israel because Moses will intercede 
on their behalf. You need somebody to intercede for you once in a while? You need somebody to take up for you once in a while? It's one thing for somebody on this planet to take up for you just because they like you. It's another thing for somebody from heaven above to take up for you knowing you don't deserve to be taken up for. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while we were best friends. Not while He saw something uh, sparkly great in us. But in the, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 22. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people murmured against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Let's stop right there. There's a lot of things that you can see in this passage. Uh, the first thing that we want to notice here is that they went three days' journey into the wilderness. That was the purpose for Moses when he came into Egypt's land. He came to Pharaoh and said, Let my people go. That we may go three days' journey into the wilderness... Sacrifice unto the Lord. He, he said this over and over and over. About four or five times he said this. We're now getting to that point of they've left Egypt and they're going three days journey into the wilderness. And when they get there, it's not going to be what they thought it was going to be. It's going to be different. They journey out there in this place in the world, and there's no water. And then the next place that they go to is bitter water. Yet it's three days' journey. You cannot read the Bible. You cannot read the Bible even from a cursory examination, just here and there, and not realize the importance of three days. The very first time it appears is when Joseph is in prison and there's a, a butcher and there is a baker that has a dream. And the, the result of the dream is, is when they come to Joseph, they say, we had this dream and we don't, don't know what it means. The explanation of the dream is to each of you in three days, something's going to happen. One of you is going to be restored back to your original position. The other one of you in three days you're going to have your head chopped off and, and you're going to die. Don't know if I'd ever like to hear an explanation of a dream like that, but that was what Joseph gave. This is what's going to happen in three days. Here they go three days' journey into the wilderness. Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. And in Joshua chapter 1, about verse 11, Joshua chapter 1, verse 11, God tells Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you get up and go. And what I want you to do is I want you to tell the children of Israel, wash themselves, change their clothes, for in three days you'll cross Jordan into Canaan's land. And the illustration there is is that in three days Joshua is going to accomplish something that Moses could not accomplish in 40 years. 
Joshua is a picture of Jesus Christ, by the way. The law came by Moses, as told to us in John chapter 1. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see, the law was never going to get anybody into heaven. It's going to be the grace and truth of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus did in three days, the law couldn't do in 40 years or 400 years or 4,000 years. Book of Jonah. Jonah gets thrown overboard and the Bible says that God prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the well three days and three nights. Now, scientists, atheists, unbelievers, they think they've got to, they think they've got a valid excuse not to believe the Bible because they'll look out here in the ocean, they'll look out in all the animals that they know of. Did you catch that statement? They'll look at the things that they know of as if what they know is all there is to know. Yet there are depths of the ocean we have not plummeted yet. There are depths of the ocean that we've not seen yet. It's just too far down for us to go. But the Bible does not say that there was just a fish that swallowed up Jonah. It says that God prepared a fish to swallow Jonah. And so they say, well, there's no fish alive today that could swallow a man. Yet it doesn't say that he had to be alive today. He just had to be alive at that time. And the Bible does not say that the fish existed before that time either. God very well could have put it in the, in the water that day. Just like there was a fish that had a coin in its mouth that Peter fetched out of the water and paid his taxes with. When was the last time you saw a fish with a coin in its mouth? I've never seen one. Don't like the fish anyways, but I've never seen one myself. About think y'all ain't never seen one. But you know what? There don't need to be any. There needed to be one that day. There needed to be deliverance that day. Jonah's in this fish's belly three days and three nights. And in Matthew chapter 12, about verse 39, 30, 38, 39, Jesus tells them that an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. Any of y'all in here looking for signs that God is with you? Well, hey, look, come on now. I'm, I'm just like the rest of you. I want to know the Lord is on my side. I really do. I want to know that where I'm going and what I'm doing, the Lord is blessing. And I'd like to have just a great big flaming, flashing arrow saying, this way, this way, this way. Any of y'all with me? Are y'all big a sinner as I am? All right. But more often than not, when God is with you, it doesn't mean the way is easy. It doesn't mean there are no difficulties. It does not mean that the land that you come into is going to be overflowing with water right now. Because where are we at in the text? But more often than not, when God is with you, there's turbulence and turmoil on the outside. But there will be peace on the inside. You can be completely tent where you are regardless of what surrounds you. Not because of who you are, but because of who He is. I mean, who else gave Paul and Silas the power to pray and sing after being beaten and thrown into jail? 
Power of positive attitude? Don't think so. Strong free will? Don't think so. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Bearing witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Will oftentimes give you more assurance that God is with you than all the flaming arrows and the thrown out fleeces that anybody could ever do. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. He says, no sign shall be given at thee, but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This, this three days, three nights thing is traced all the way through Scripture. Always pointing us to one thing. The Lord Jesus Christ. Did you ever, did you ever notice that time? I, I never really paid attention. To, some things you never pay attention to until you're forced to kind of study them a little bit. But did you ever notice in Mark 8, when Jesus is out here teaching this multitude, He says He has compassion on the multitude, for lo, they've been with Me this many days. Lo, they've been with Me three days, and they have no food. And to that point, He takes a few loaves and a few fishes and, and multiplies them to this vast multitude. But how long have they been with Him? It says three days. Now, I don't know if they hadn't eaten in three days, or while they were out there, they ran out of food by the end of three days, but... You know, there's something important about this fact that there's three days and there's no food. There's something important about Exodus that there's three days and there's no light. There's something important about there's something important about having three days and nothing to show for it, so to speak. Because they come to this place of water, uh, uh, this, this place of no water after three days. And then the next place they come is water, but it's bitter water. You can't drink it. I'm, I'm kind of thinking that, I'm kind of thinking that they're in a worse position here in, uh, what is this, Exodus 20, it's 15, 23. I'm thinking they're kind of in a worse position when they get to the land of bitter water than they were with no water. At least they didn't have anything. And they could always look forward to something. You know, would it not be better to have nothing than, than to have something that you can't use? Somebody asked me, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for your birthday? I'm nearly 50 years old. My wants of what I want from when I wanted what I wanted at 18, or even 8, are considerably different now. I'm, I'm quite fond of electricity, running water, central heat and air, shingles on the roof. I'm quite fond of all those things, gas in the car. My wanter is quite different than what I wanted way back then. But even way back then, I had a weird kind of wanter, you know? And some people say, well, that's just too expensive. I can't get you that. Then don't get me anything. I'd rather you not get me anything than get me something I can't use that will be broken in three days, something that's just a piece of garbage to make you feel better. You gave me something. Parents, 
Don't feel obligated to shower your children with garbage to make yourself feel better. You gave them something. Give them something they need and let it be satisfactory. Um, Do you ever notice then, as you think about this, uh, what the Bible says in Proverbs 13? Here Israel comes through this journey. Here Israel journeys out there uh, three days into the wilderness and there's no water. And then they come to a place of bitter water. Proverbs 13 verse 12 says that hope deferred maketh the heart sick. You ever wanted something? You ever tried to fix something? You ever tried to fix a car? You ever tried to just moderately remodel your house? I mean, just paint the wall. And you think you about got it fixed. And you did it wrong. I mean, you get right to the end and you realize, I did it wrong. You ever tried to put something, put, put a little toy together? And you get to the end, you got parts left over, and you're thinking, hmm. There used to be an old adage that if you didn't have parts left over, you did something wrong. But usually, if you got parts left over, you did something wrong. The Bible says, hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But then it goes on to say that when it is fulfilled or when it cometh, uh, but when the desire cometh, it is a tree of life. I like that verse. Notice that tree of life that's listed there in Proverbs 13, verse 12. Just kind of hang your hat on that just a little bit. I think Israel is in a worse position now because they come to a place of bitter water. And I think they recognize it. But Israel shows their true colors again. And they look at Moses and they begin to murmur and complain. Constantly did this. They were constantly complaining to Moses. Uh, I would venture to say that they were always complaining to the wrong source. But if Moses is a picture of Christ, maybe they were complaining in some ways to the right source. But Moses is still just a man sent from God. So, you know, balance that out, right? The pastor doesn't mind you complaining to him. The pastor minds you unnecessarily whining to him. There's a difference between voicing a complaint, voicing concern, and just flat out whining. We've got a generation nowadays, they just like to whine. And you know they like to whine because they like to whine more than they like to hear solutions. Because in the middle of you trying to explain to your child a solution to their problem, they just start talking again. Y- y'all ever had that? You ever tried to tell your child, child comes to you, that, 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 and you just try to talk to them, say, now here's what you, and they just start talking again, like, are you even listening? Israel's a lot like that. They do more whining, which is why they do less winning. It works out pretty good, doesn't it? They do more whining, a whole lot of whining, and they do a lot of less winning. They're complaining to the wrong place, so they should, have been, they, sh- they should have been taking their appeal to God. However, in the Old Testament, the gate to God was a bit shut up. We, we do recognize that. We do recognize that only the high priest was allowed to go into uh, the tabernacle, into the temple, 
And only one high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God on behalf of the people. So there's a little bit of that to consider. But when Christ came and died on the cross, Matthew tells us that 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 veil in the temple that kept the Holy of Holies secluded from the rest of it was, was torn in two from top to bottom. And so that's why Paul says, having this high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has entered into the veil, into heaven itself on our behalf, he says, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We've been gained access now to the throne of God because of the cross of Christ. But here he says, they've come to this bitter place. And they come to this bitter place and, 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 and they don't have a solution for their problem. Now, the text tells us um, that the solution to Moses' problem was is he took a tree and he, and he cut it down and he cast it into the waters. That's about the craziest thing I've ever heard. How about y'all? My wife cooked something. Tastes like burnt gravy on a Goodyear tire. It's the worst thing I've ever tasted in my entire life. So I'm going to go outside and I'm going to cut a limb off a tree and I'm going to stick it in the crock pot. And that's going to make it all better. That's the, that's the craziest thing I've ever seen. Preacher preached the worst sermon we've ever heard. Can't believe he even thinks he's called of God after what I heard today. So we're going to go outside and beat him with a stick. Make next week's better maybe. Or, hold on here. God's going to answer something. God's, God's going to answer a request. God's going to answer a problem. God's going to fix something. The answer is right in front of them, though. I, and it's right in front of them. It's hidden in plain sight. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24 we find somewhat this same situation played out. Part of the discouragement in, part of the discouragement in the New Testament was that the disciples did the wrong thing. Go back and read. Or even, or even, just, uh, even just break out a, a concordance and maybe just get a scan of this. But read the number of times that Jesus told them that I'll be delivered into the hands of wicked men. I'll be delivered to the Gentiles. I'll be crucified, spit upon, buffeted. I mean, just, just go and look at that long list of all the horrendous things that are going to happen to him. Be betrayed in the hands of these sinful men. Scourged and killed. And the third day, raise again. And every time that you read that, it's about six times, I guess I'll go ahead and tell you. It's, about, it's two times in each, two times in Matthew, two times in Mark, two times in Luke, he says this. And periodically, the Bible will tell you that they did not understand what he said. They were confused at what he said, and they were afraid to ask. That's also a problem. But Jesus told them, 
that I would be crucified and the third day be raised again. Now, you and I don't have a problem with that. Because you and I have, have the Bible to tell this story to us. You say, well, why didn't the disciples listen? Why were they so ignorant? Well, when you, when you went to the doctor and the doctor told you that you had the bad word, cancer. Did you listen to anything he said after that? Probably not. Because that is such a devastating word in our day today. He might have told you it's very small cancer. Very little to even worry about. We can take care of this, no problem. It's just a little spot on your hand. All we have to do is remove it. It's a little spot on your cheek. All we got to do is cut it off. But you're sitting at home and you're allowing this little, tiny molehill of information to be a mountain of disaster in your life. You know how I know this? Because I'm the same way. I allow little bitty things that may not be that bad overrun my life. So in Luke 24, they're perplexed at the situation. Because in the midst of Jesus telling them that I will be delivered in the hands of sinful men and killed and raised again the third day, He also told them, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. He told them that. I'm not going to be there. I'm going to be in Galilee. And the whole problem with Luke 24 is everybody went to the wrong place. And they get to the wrong place and the tomb is empty and they didn't find the body and they don't know what to do because they didn't listen. In Luke 24, it says in verse 13, Behold, two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furloins. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. Well, that is such a beautiful verse. Jesus Himself drew near and went with them. Don't you need that in your life? Everybody wants a life verse. What's a life verse for me? What's a life verse for you? A lot of these preachers live on a life verse. I don't know that there's a greater verse for your life than this right here. Jesus Himself drew near and went with you. It says in verse 16, though, that their eyes were holden, that they should not know Him. In other words, their eyes were covered. Hey, the solution to your problem is standing right in front of you. The solution is right here. But He's hidden in plain sight. They could see this guy standing here. But something had occurred that they could not recognize that it was in fact Jesus Christ. This is played out all through the Bible. As We referenced the days of darkness in Exodus earlier. But did you ever remember in Genesis 
when those angels came down to Lot in Genesis 19. And the men of the city came and they beat upon the door and said, bring out these men that we may know them. And they wanted to commit abominable acts. Or Paul calls them in Romans chapter 1, men with men working that which is unseemly, uh, indecent, immoral. That's what they wanted to do. And they would have, they would have hurt Lot because Lot would not release his visitors to this uh, mob of, of angry heathens. But it says in Genesis 19 that those angels reached out the door, grabbed Lot in, they shut the door, and then they smote the men with blindness. The Bible says, both small and great. Um, he says both small and great. Does that mean small and great as in uh, powerful and least powerful? As in, you know, the president down to the garbage collector? Or is it both small and great speaking of grown men? small children. You say, surely it's not the latter. Surely it's not grown men and small children. Are you watching the news? Are you paying attention to what's going on in America today? Of all the things that you and I never ever thought would be acceptable in America, it's the abuse and misuse of children. Never thought that'd be a thing in America. But they are being groomed and trained and brainwashed to be something that opposes God. The greatest among us. You know, there's one thing to be teaching some teenagers certain things. Because they're kind of in an age where they might need to know these things. It's something completely different to be teaching this to kindergartners, first graders, second graders. Catching, I'm, I'm glad that y'all are adults in here and you're catching what I'm throwing. That's the city. That's, that's the place Lot lived in. You think, you think the church won't find itself? In a city like that when Christ comes back? That's what Jesus said. He said, as in the days of Noah and as in the days of Lot, so shall it be the coming of the Son of Man. Their eyes were closed that they could not see the door. They wearied themselves all night to find the door. Uh, there was a time in, uh, in, in, in Kings, I believe it's... Uh, I believe it's 2 Kings. Um, where is that one? Where is that passage? That's 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha's out here. And uh, he's telling the king of Israel what this foreign invading king wants to do for him or do against him. He's spoiling uh, the enemy's plans just because God is whispering to Elisha what to do. And this invading army comes to his house. And it says his little servant boy, this is a 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17. You can find this. Uh, that this little servant boy looks out and he sees this great army. 
And he says to him, Master, what shall we do? Elisha says to him, Fear not, for they that be with us are greater than this. There's more numbers with us than with this army. Now, you've got to think that this little servant boy is thinking that Elisha's probably slipping now. He's probably, you know, there's you, this old crotchety curmudgeon feller about to fall apart, and this young kid, and a whole army out there. Notice in this beautiful passage that Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And God hears the prayer, God answers the prayer, and the next time the lad looks out the door, he sees the, the, the mountains and the hills full of horses and chariots of God. You know, instead of us, instead of us seeing what the news media wants us to see, Instead of us seeing what CNN wants us to see, or Fox News wants us to see, or ABC, or NBC, or CBS, or any of this other garbage, instead of seeing what they want you to see, why don't you try and see what God wants you to see? Why don't you look outside and see what God sees? Because God sees His whole entire army encamped around the invading army. The invading army is in greater danger than they think. And I guarantee you that the political powers of this nation are in greater danger than they possibly can think. We are not in danger. They are. And Elisha walks out the door. He walks right out to them. And in the same instance that these men are blinded, that they cannot see Christ standing there, this army is blinded and they cannot see Elisha. He's standing right there in front of them. And he tells them, he says, I'm not the prophet you're looking for. And he leads them. I wasn't going to say that. These are not the droids you're looking for. He leads them, this Syrian, this uh, Assyrian army, into the land of Samaria. He leads them right into the middle of their own enemy. And God opens their eyes and they see what trouble they're in. God is going to deliver Israel in Exodus 15. But the only way that they will be able to see it is that God Himself reveals it. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says that the secret things of, uh, the secret things uh, belong unto the Lord our God. There's a lot of things hidden in God. You ever notice how many people try and spend so much time trying to pry into God's secret box? Of course, uh, sometimes, sometimes those in the, uh, in the world around us, they'll talk about the secret will of God. This is the secret will of God. And you know, hear about everything they talk about is the secret will of God. And you're thinking, if it's the secret will of God, how do you know so much about it? He says that the secret things of God belong unto, the, belong unto Him. He says, those things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. I'd like to have a lot more revealed light in my life. I'd like to have a lot more revealed light on the Scriptures. How about you? The question is, is what are you doing with the light you've got right now? I'd like to have more money, in other words. Let me put this simpler. I'd like to have more money. Who in here would like to have more money? 
What are you doing with the money you got? If you're wasting the money you've got, why should God give you more money to waste? This one's fixing to be ugly right here. I'd like to have more people in our congregations. Should I finish that sentence? What are you doing with the members you got now? I hate that. I hate that reference. I hate it because it's true. Secret things belong to the Lord. Those things that are revealed belong unto us. But now it says that their eyes were holding that they they should not see Him. This, this is beautiful. This is just a wonderful way that Jesus works right here. Because he hides himself. He has the ability to hide himself from those that are around him. And now he starts asking them a series of questions. Um, <clears throat> sometimes those who object to the Bible do so from some of the dumbest things I've ever heard. They'll say, uh, Jesus cannot be all-knowing. God cannot be all-knowing. Because I find in the Bible where God and Jesus ask questions. I thought people were smarter than that. Maybe I give human beings too much credit. Jesus is not asking questions here that He may learn. He is asking questions to draw these things out of the disciples. Because there are some things that you believe in your life. There are some things you believe in your mind. But the moment they leave your mouth, that allows you to hear how wrong they are. There's multitudes who... I'll give you an example. There's multitudes who fill this nation. Believe that a woman has the right to abort her unborn child because of body autonomy. Y'all heard this, right? My body, my choice. Right? Parade through our streets, burn our cities down, they scream, they yell and holler, my body, my choice. Right? Well, I have never had the displeasure of attending any of these rallies, mob cries, things like this. But there are several religious groups or several conservative groups that have gone to these places and they'll interview these people as they walk down the street and ask them, do you believe my body, my choice? Yes, absolutely. The next question out of their mouth is, then do you believe concerning the vaccine, my body, my choice? Oh, oh no. No, that's, that's, that's dangerous to society and that, that kills people if you don't catch it. Or some of them will say, hmm, I don't feel like answering this and they'll walk away. There was a commentator that started that phrase, what is a woman? Trying to figure out, you know, well, if, if trans women are women, then what is a woman? Let's, let's define what a woman is. And these hordes of people fill the street and say, well, I'm not a woman, so I don't have the right to define what a woman is. And the very next question is, do you know what a cat is? Because if you're not a veterinarian, how do you know what a cat is, right? And most of them look at him and say, I shouldn't have answered this question. And they'll walk off. Jesus is not answering, not asking questions to find information. Jesus is asking questions to draw out of people why they believe what they believe. And they go through this long list of all these things. 
But they ask him, he says, art thou a stranger? Or they, they answer him, art thou a stranger in Jerusalem? And it's not known the things which have come to pass there in these days. This is uh, verse 18. Go through this long list of things. But, but one thing is, is wonderful about this. Let me see if I can get down here to it. Verse 20, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside all this, today is, oh, there we go, the third day since these things were done. What kind of position are they in? They are in a position where for thousands of years, they were looking for the fulfillment of, of multiple prophecies concerning the coming Messiah. I mean, you can start in Genesis 3, wherein the Lord says that uh, the seed of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. Very first time you hear about it. And you just trace this prophecy all the way through. We, we preached for several weeks out of Genesis that the lawgiver shall not depart from Judah, no, uh, or the, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor lawgiver from twenty three until Shiloh come. They're looking for that. That They had looked for when Moses said that God would raise up out of the midst of thee a prophet from amongst thy brethren like unto me. This is why they asked a light. This is why they asked John the Baptist. Art thou he that should come? Art thou that prophet? Not a prophet. Right? There's a difference between a prophet and that prophet. They were looking for that prophet. They were looking for Shiloh to come. They were looking for the seed of the woman to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. So they were in a place of no water. He hadn't come yet. But here comes this character who walked on water. Healed the sick. Healed the blind. Healed the deaf. Healed the lame. Raised the dead. Here comes this character whom they looked at him and said, uh, you know, Master, you, you've got to be with God. You've got to, surely you're a prophet that's come from God because no man doeth these things except God be with him. This is the guy they're looking at here. This is the guy that when the Roman soldiers went to arrest him and they came back empty handed, the chief priest said, why didn't you arrest him? They said, never man spake like this guy. This is the man who owned the boat. Spoke to the waters and said, peace be still. And there was a great calm. And they said, well, hold, what manner of man is this? This is the one in John 10 when they said, if thou be the Christ, just tell us plainly. He says, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Some of you saw me walk on water. Some of you saw me heal the lame. Some of you saw me heal the sick. No doubt some of you are going to be standing there when Peter cuts off Malchus's ear and Jesus picks it up and just puts it right back on his head. Who else has ever done that? That's the guy that we're talking about. But they crucified him. And this whole thing is just one bitter experience. We had trusted. Our hope was elevated. But when he died, our hope died with him. We don't know what to do. The Bible says that Jesus began at Moses and all the prophets. 
and expounded unto them all things concerning himself that were written in the Scriptures. What a sermon. What a sermon. And he says to him, he says, Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to have entered into his glory? You see what happened? What made the difference? What made the difference is exactly what happened in Exodus 15. You turn back to Exodus 15 when Moses appealed to God and said, What are we going to drink? What are we going to do? It says that the Lord showed him a tree. In the Song of Solomon, the description is given of this, this, this young lady gives this description of her beloved. I believe it's Song of Solomon chapter 2. He says, as the apple trees among the orchards, so is my beloved among the sons. And she says, here, here comes this one. Here comes this, this young lady, this beloved, this, this lady hanging on the arm of her beloved. And the Bible tells us there in the Song of Solomon that she was one whom her mother had brought up under the apple tree. A lot of things that are done in the Old Testament, they're done under a green tree. I mean, that, that, that phrase appears over and over, probably about 35 times it appears in the Scriptures. You say, that can't be right. Prove me wrong. I probably am wrong. I'll go ahead and tell you, I probably am wrong. I guessed at that number. So prove me wrong. Read the Bible and prove me wrong. But there were a lot of things done under the green trees by the pagans. But friends, there were some good things done by God's people under a tree. When God comes to Abraham in Genesis 18, God, Abraham sees the Lord coming to him. He sees the Lord coming to him in Genesis 18, but he also sees three men coming to him. And the Lord and these three men are addressed interchangeably. Sort of like a triune existence. And Abraham brings him over and he says, come and sit and wash your feet. And he prepares food for them and says, sit down and eat under the tree. Sometimes it's not important necessarily as what's being under the tree. But you read in, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a great dream. Remember this, you remember the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar has this great dream, this great tree. Tree, and, and the dream says the tree was so great, fowls of the air lodged in the boughs of the tree, and the animals got shade under the tree. But it comes a time where the tree's cut down. Through Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he's cut down. He's driven out into the field. He's no longer the king of Babylon. He's this wild, hairy-looking animal out here in the field. Yet Job says in Job 14, if a man die, shall he live again? He says there's hope of a tree that if it be cut down, he shall come back. 
You ever cut some? You ever cut trees down and you go back out there a few months later, a few years later, and there's a little sprig coming outside of it? You ever tried to cut bamboo down? Bamboo's of the devil. Y'all think bamboo looks cute? Bamboo is of the devil. And kudzu is of the devil. I believe when people go to hell, they'll have to cut bamboo and kudzu for all eternity. The problem with bamboo is, is not only is it a stalk, but it's got a runner. You may cut the stalk down, but if you don't dig up every, every last little inch of that runner, it'll grow again. Job said if a tree's cut down, it'll, it shall, it'll live again. And Nebuchadnezzar is allowed to return to his throne only because God allowed it to happen. Those animals got shade under the tree. The Lord fed these men under the tree. That lady in Song of Solomon says she brought up her child under the tree. Hey, where are we going with this? Being under the tree is important. But you know what's also important? What's on the tree. Because she, she grew up under the apple tree. And if you're hungry, pick an apple, right? Because read Song of Solomon. He says, I, I grew up under this tree and uh, here is this tree of life. And I, and I, and I tasted of the fruit and, and the fruit was sweet. You know, we're reading about that in Exodus 15, right? Y'all, are y'all drawing all these? Y'all hanging your hooks on these little passages here? Sometimes it's just as important as what's on the tree. Because when I get over here to the New Testament, Peter tells us, Second Peter, that the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins in His body and nailed them to a cross. Paul says in Galatians, he says, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. You see, when, when Moses cried unto God, he says, this is bitter. What are we going to do? The Lord showed him a tree. See, Paul says to run the race with patience that is set before you. Romans chapter 12. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured what? The cross. Despising the shame. He endured what? This tree. What do we look? Are we looking at just a tree? Or are we looking at what's hanging on the tree? Death is probably the most bitter thing that's ever occurred in anybody's life. To have to look and see one you love stretched out and never be seen again in this life. And it doesn't matter if it's a child or if it's a parent. Death is a hateful creature. But when you come to that bitter point of life, what is the only thing that can make it sweet? The only thing that can make it sweet is that Jesus Christ Himself, who laid in the grave three days and three nights, came forth victorious. The only thing that makes the bitterness of this life sweet to the taste is the fact that Christ our Savior 
has gone there first. He said, if they treated me this way, guess what? Guess how they'll treat you. So when bad things happen to you in this life, it's not always because you're going the wrong way. Sometimes bad things will happen to you because the devil hates you. And if the devil hates you, that's a pretty good person to hate you, right? Kind of quiet. I mean, y'all want to be friends with the devil? None of us want to be friends with the devil, right? No. It's good that the devil don't like you. Why? Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in this wretched, evil world. So finally in this passage, the Lord brings them down to this well-watered place. You see, they went from no water to bitter water, to sweet water, to well water. Every one of us, every one of the elect family will see heaven and all its glory. A place well watered for all of us. Because of the tree that was cast into this bitter world. And for that... Can we be a little bit grateful? That's what makes life all the better. Not me. Not you. Not things that we have. But maybe, just maybe, that Christ Himself drew near and goes with us. Thank you for your kind attention this morning.